Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of street harassment, a car collision, and the graphic death of an infant. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Parenting changes a person. Suddenly, there's a new life that's your responsibility. You feed them, nurture them, and occasionally leave them in someone else's care. But even then, the modern parent has more access than ever when it comes to their children's caregivers. They can stream videos of the playroom to their office computer. They can FaceTime throughout the day for updates. Technology is a lifeline between the child and their distant parent. But it's normal to want a little time away from responsibilities. A moment or two to remember that you were a person before you were a parent. So, you unplug. You leave your child at home, hiring someone to take care of them. They'll show up just as you leave, and your child will be perfectly safe for a few days. Unless the babysitter never arrives. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, we take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth and share their stories. This episode is part of our Urban Legends Halloween special. Every day for the month of October, we're presenting our spooky spin on an urban legend, then diving into the history of the horror. Like it or not, each terrifying tale contains a grain of truth. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Today, we examine a legend that preys on the deepest of parental fears, that when your child needs you more than ever, you're thousands of miles away, unable to save them. It's healthy to give both you and the kids some space, but you can never guarantee that they're safe in the hands of a stranger. First emerging in the mid-80s, baby high chair death is a warning to first-time parents, a tale of tragedy brutal enough to make them question every choice they've ever made in regards to their baby's safety. The nationality of the parents changes from iteration to iteration. Sometimes they're Norwegian and other times they're American. The babysitter may leave due to a miscommunication or not make it to the house at all. But there's one constant. The parents return home to find their bundle of joy dead. Babies are some of the most helpless creatures on earth. And the thought of one being left to languish and die is incredibly tragic. This story preys on the minds of parents who consider spending any time away from their infant. She laid out her clothes and set several alarms on her phone. Yet somehow, somehow, Britt still woke up late. 
Not a great first impression when you were going to be taking care of a baby for a week. But Britt was proactive. She sent a quick text to the parents, Tolly and Max, before turning the ignition in her car. It was only a 20-minute drive. If she drove just a little over the speed limit, she'd be able to make up the difference. The clouds hung low in the morning fog. They obscured her vision, making the road nearly impossible to see. She held the accelerator to the floor, despite the low visibility, hoping to make up time, even as the need for sleep pulled at her eyelids. Another car suddenly burst through the haze on the opposite side of the road. The only hint at first was the disturbance of the haze itself, a phantom arm waving back and forth. Then, a fearful man appeared in the fog, leaning out his driver's side window. She rolled her window down to catch his words. Heat hit her like a tidal wave. The man screamed that her car was on fire. Britt pulled to the side of the road. Sweat clung to her brow. Her cheeks were a heated pink. She opened the door and ran to safety. She turned around once she was clear, watching her little junker steam and smoke, encasing the vehicle in a kind of amorphous ash bubble. The big white and gray billowing clouds hadn't been in the sky at all, only in her engine. She called AAA. They informed her that a 10-car pileup on the highway was slowing service down. It would be several hours before they would be there to collect her car. Britt nodded her head, like they could see her. When the operator asked if anyone was still on the line, she realized her mistake. She said that would be fine, and hung up. Britt called Max to explain. He already sounded on edge when he picked up. They were running late for the airport as it was. They didn't have time to ferry her to the house and back. Britt understood, but that still left them without a plan. Max asked if she could call a cab for herself. Britt stammered. She didn't want to tell her host just how broke she was. She suggested nervously that she could walk the rest of the way. It would take some time, but it was doable. Brid could almost hear Max's brain moving as he muttered to himself for a minute before speaking to her. They would leave baby Oliver in his high chair. Ollie had just had his morning snack and would probably fall asleep. She'd just need to check on him as soon as she reached the house. She told him she could do that, happy to still have the job. A walk would help clear her head and Ollie would be safe in his little high chair. Nothing to worry about. She wished Max and Tolly safe travels, locked her car, and started to walk along the gravel by the side of the road. Britt breathed, calming herself down. The AAA people would handle her car while she took care of Ollie. Everything would be all right. The sun rose higher. Sweat rolled down her back. Gravel slipped under her flip-flops, biting at her heels. The shoulder dwindled until she found herself walking on the very edge of the pavement. On her left was the road, on her right was a rough slope, leading down into a thicket of bristling bushes. A car horn momentarily deafened her. Britt turned to glare at the vehicle. It was some kind of cherry red muscle car. The kind of thing that told you exactly how confident the driver was about his place in the world. 
The massive car slowed at speed, taking advantage of the sudden lack of traffic. The passenger side window lowered, and a floppy-haired teenage boy poked his head out. She stared at him for a minute, and then resumed her walking. He called to her. She rolled her eyes, picking up her pace just a little. He told her she shouldn't be like that. Girls were always too scared to talk to guys. God forbid a man show a little initiative. His name, in case she cared to know it, was Jason. She flashed him the nicest smile she could muster and kept her feet moving forward. The car pulled ever so slightly to the right, aligning its left wheel with her flip-flops. Out of the corner of her eye, Britt looked for any spot that might be a worthy hiding place, but the brambles at the base of the slope were too thick. If she stepped off the pavement, she could fall into the thorns and cut herself. She just tried to walk faster, sweating harder. Jason told her that her smile was pretty, and it took more than some quick footwork to lead him off the chase. Britt pulled her phone out of her pocket. There had to be someone that she could text, someone who knew how to handle this or could get her out of here. Jason kept calling after her. He didn't like phones. The car was nearly touching her heels now. He told her it would be so easy for him to just accelerate and crush her pretty little skull to pieces. So maybe she shouldn't be so rude. Live a little. It's summer. Britt came to a full stop. The car bumped against the back of her legs, making her stumble a half-step forward. She turned to face him, making a big display of sliding her phone back into her pocket. Her thoughts drifted to Ollie. That little dude needed her, so she could pretend. She smiled at Jason through the windshield. He told her to come closer. She hesitated for a second. Britt ran to his side of the window. He smiled at her, all of his teeth on display. A shiver raced down her spine. His tongue crept to the corner of his mouth for a moment, and Britt was sure that he'd like nothing more than to rip her flesh from her bones. Jason's hand reached out and traced her arm slowly. Britt didn't like the look in his eyes. She told him she really needed to get going to her babysitting job, but she'd totally give him her number if they'd like to talk later. His laugh was dry, and his smile somehow got toothier. He never liked kids, he said. But since she was a bit of a child at heart, they should play a little game. See how fast she could go. Jason's hand closed tightly around her wrist. Her muscles tensed under his grip. Then he pressed the gas. Britt tried to pull her hand away from him, but his hold was like iron. The car dragged her along, her feet sliding against the gravel. It sped up, kicking tiny pebbles directly into her knees. She yelped in pain. Jason just laughed. He studied Britt's body for a second before telling her she was very strong. She could handle a bit more. She screamed, feeling her shoulders start to dislocate. She tried to brace herself against the door, but it wasn't working. Her feet struggled to find purchase on the ground. 
The pain in her arm was unbearable, sending trails of fire from her shoulder to the nerves in her hand. The car slowed down. Britt didn't waste her chance. As soon as her feet touched the ground, she threw herself backward, hoping the inertia would break his grasp. His nails tore at her skin as she finally fell away, stumbling, barely recovering in time to run in the opposite direction from the car's path. The monstrous engine revved as the red car slid into reverse. Britt raced around the back and sprinted for the other side of the road. It was at that moment that an 18-wheeler rose over the hill, pushing 80 miles per hour. She couldn't turn back. Jason was driving beside her now, sporting an almost serene grin. She took a chance, rushing toward the other shoulder, hoping the truck driver's reflexes were faster than Jason's. The impact sent her body flying back into the lane of Jason's car. Her phone arced above her, suspended in space, as her bones snapped and her muscles tore. The cracked screen displayed a text message from Max, letting her know that Ollie would need formula as soon as she got to the house. Then, it went black. Coming up, we'll check in on Ollie. Now back to the story. A week away from their child was both a blessing and a curse. Tali had picked a retreat in Hawaii that didn't allow cell phones. Even if she was tempted to micromanage Brit, she wouldn't be able to. That didn't stop her from worrying about Ollie the entire time, but she was sure it had given Brit some semblance of peace. Plus, her therapist would be pleased that she was working on her trust issues. She'd even managed to enjoy herself at least half the time. That was progress in itself. As soon as they'd touched back down in the continental United States, however, Tolly powered her phone up and called Brit. The phone rang and rang. Tolly checked the time. Ollie would probably be getting one of his feedings right now. She wouldn't have wanted Britt to be on her phone during that anyway. Tolly decided she could wait half an hour and call back when they had made it through baggage and were headed back home. Trust, she reminded herself. She could do this. Just a few more hours before she could smother her baby with kisses. She kept her promise to herself, calling Britt's cell and then the house phone one more time from the shuttle on the way to the airport parking. No answer. Still. She tried to keep her panic down as she got in the car, not wanting to upset Max. Max drove with his left hand, his fingers interlaced with hers on the right. He told her that Britt and Ollie were probably playing peekaboo or watching videos. Everything was fine. Tolly noticed something across the road. A small wooden cross was stuck in the gravel, falling a bit forward, like a sad scarecrow. That hadn't been there a week ago. Small picture frames and flowers were clustered around the cross. The girl was pretty. Blonde hair, round cheeks. She looked a lot like... Tolly's heart pounded loudly in her ears. 
she tried Britt's phone again. It rang and rang. Tully nudged Max, asking if he had seen the cross. He hadn't. She was just overreacting. They'd be home in 20 minutes, Max. She should practice her breathing exercises until they got home. She shut her eyes. Maybe he was right. Just a mother's nerves. As the car sped down the street, Tully was transported back to the sands of Hawaii. The sun shone brightly. The waves crashed against the shore. Ollie, her beautiful bouncing child, was wobbling towards her. She opened her arms wide to him. He fell headfirst into the sand. Tully was up on her feet, rushing to his side. But he squirmed and flailed as she tried to hold him, his small body slipping through her fingers. She tried to turn him face side up, but she couldn't get his head to move. It was frozen in place. Tolly screamed for help. A shriek answered her. She looked up just for a second to see Britt wandering down the shoreline in a gauzy white dress. The sun struck her, revealing that Britt's left arm dangled limply by her side, pulled out of the socket at a horrifyingly crooked angle. Tolly screamed for help from someone, anyone. Britt faced her head on. Her eyes were swollen, bulging out of her face. Her nose had shriveled away. Fat hung loosely around her face, not supported by any bones. Tolly looked away, unable to bear the sight of their new nanny. She would help Ollie on her own. But when she looked down, he wasn't in the sand anymore. Her eyes cast about the shore wildly, trying to find any hint of her precious son. She finally spotted him, clinging to Britt's dislocated arm. Protectiveness surged through Tolly. She sprinted towards them, the wet sand pulling her legs down. She fought the sand and the wind, screaming for her son. And then, in front of her eyes, the two of them disappeared. Someone touched her shoulder. Tully yelped. The beach fell away, replaced by their concrete driveway. She was awake. They were home. She was a few short steps from her son. Britt's car was nowhere to be found, but Max reminded Tully that her vehicle had been totaled. She'd probably just used the other family car all week. Tully nodded, but her heart was still pounding. Max told her to take a moment and collect herself. Ollie would be upset if he saw her upset. She nodded and took several deep breaths. Tolly had let her panic at the best of her. She could do better. She would do better. For Ollie's sake. The house smelled different. Tolly always kept candles burning. Orange and vanilla, her favorite scents. This smelled more like garbage that had been sitting in the sun for several days. Tolly shared a look with Max. This would be the last time they hired a nanny without doing a test run first. He told her that he would take care of the garbage in the kitchen. She nodded her head, dragging their suitcases into their bedroom, taking one more moment to center herself, slow her breathing, and put on a brave face for Ollie. He couldn't know that she'd been worried, 
She wanted him to grow up without being afraid of everything, knowing that the world was a safe and kind place. Tolly turned towards the kitchen. She called out to Max, but he didn't answer. And she couldn't hear Britt either. Where was everyone? She left the bedroom, kicking off her shoes, and headed to the kitchen. Max was hunched over in the doorway, clutching his stomach. She asked what was wrong. He shook violently, vomit hitting the tile floors. Tolly was at his side immediately, rubbing circles into his back. She asked if it was the in-flight meal. He shook his head. Then he vomited again. He turned Tolly back towards the bedroom, a little too roughly. She didn't understand. Max told her it would be better if she didn't go into the kitchen. She told him she could handle the smell. His grip tightened on her. Tolly pushed him off, telling him he was being silly. Her delicate lady sensitivities could handle... And then she saw her baby, Oliver, his cheeks sallow, red marks across his little chest from where the high chair straps had dug into his skin. He'd tried to fight his way out. His skin was green and yellow with splotches of black. Tolly felt her own stomach roiling, but she needed to touch him. He was her baby. They'd hired someone to take care of him. He couldn't be dead. Max protested behind her, clutching at her desperately. But she ignored him. The smell grew in intensity as she approached her baby. He had been so happy with chubby red cheeks when she left, mouthing syllables, learning the alphabet up to G. His skin was mostly cool. A patch of sunlight from the kitchen window had burned his back, leaving a warm spot behind. He was so small now. She opened the straps to free him, wanting to take him in her arms, even in all his ugliness. Her beautiful little boy. The rotten husk of the child slipped from her grasp and fell to the floor leaving only the bones in the plastic high chair seat. Baby high chair death and the cooked baby, which we'll explore in a later episode, are some of the most disturbing urban legends in the English language folklore. It's striking, then, that both stories are still relatively young when compared to other babysitter-in-peril stories of the 60s and 70s. But the baby negligence legends reflect a modern and striking turn in the way Western parents care for their children. In many ways, baby high chair death is an admonishment of the popular ideas of parenting in the 70s and early 80s. Kids were expected to entertain themselves, and many of the ideas that people take for granted now surrounding child safety, such as wearing a helmet while biking or keeping children out of isolated areas, weren't as common. The late 70s was the beginning of the parental advice industry. Experts warred in the press, and many parents consumed their books obsessively 
ushering in a new, more touchy-feely system of care. Even the phrase parenting didn't become popular until the mid-1970s. Until that point, child-rearing was the favored term, which makes one think more of livestock than humans. In 1984, the same year that the urban legend of the baby high chair death started to appear across the country, there was a new guide to help pregnant people navigate their new journey. What to expect when you're expecting. What to expect when you're expecting, its sequels and its imitators, advocated a far more active approach to both pregnancy and childcare. It was a new frontier of both emotional intimacy and bonding for parents of all genders. Like other new frontiers before it, part of crafting this new parenting style meant chastising the older models. Baby high chair death is the nightmare outcome of leaving your child in the care of a stranger. It punishes the parents for running late and always ends with them having to deal with the tragic consequences that their quick and dismissive thinking caused. The story also, oddly, usually contains anti-speeding themes. Several different versions of the legend involve the nanny ending up in a car accident or being hit by a car. They're so focused on reaching their destination that they don't pay attention to the road. As frightening as the baby high chair death is, the story goes from over-the-top morality play to all too real when placed in proper context. Babies need near constant care and supervision. And yet, this is usually the time when parents are less attentive than they would like to be due to lack of sleep and resources. This need for a break can lead to mistakes with devastating consequences. From April to August of 2019 alone, 40 children died after being left alone by their parents in locked vehicles, eventually suffering so-called hot car deaths. In Calverton Park, Missouri, an 11-month-old child was discovered 15 hours after being placed in her parents' car. She died in the driveway of her grandmother's house. Both parents had assumed that the other had taken the baby inside and put her down for a nap. In another incident, an overworked father failed to realize that he hadn't dropped his twin infant daughters off at daycare on his way to work. The two children were left in the parking lot of the VA Medical Center for eight hours while their father worked his full shift as a social worker. The daycare confusion is tragically common. In his 2009 Pulitzer Prize-winning long-form piece on the complicated nature of hot car child death for both survivors and the justice system, the Washington Post's Gene Weingarten reports that several of the parents he interviewed had actually driven back to the daycare at the end of their workday, not noticing their child's corpse in the back seat. Unlike real life, the urban legend partially absolves the parents of responsibility for the death. They didn't forget about their son. They just didn't know that the caregiver had never made it there. It wasn't truly their fault. They trusted a well-intentioned but ill-fated person with their child's safety. And the true horror rests in the fact that they didn't even know their child was dying. But it's all too easy to see the threads between fact and fiction in the story. So, get plenty of sleep 
and remember to slow down long enough to consider the risks. Never, ever leave your child alone. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back tomorrow with a new urban legend and on Thursday with a new haunted place. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals like Haunted Places for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Until tomorrow, don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>